Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It's Thursday, October 7th, 2010. And our special guests tonight are Joseph DiMartino and Denise Walk. Welcome to both of you. Thanks for having us on. It's a pleasure to meet you. Likewise. Thank you both for coming tonight. This is a this is going to be a very fun evening. The Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate, now part of Blackboard. It's going to be interesting to keep saying that. The project I work on is Learn Central. It's a social network for educators that has Illuminate baked in. We hope you'll come and take advantage of that. It's all free. This month, uh, the Microsoft Project Redo is helping to sponsor the Future of Education. So our thanks to them as well. And that's bing.com forward slash R-E-D-U. Coming up in November, our Global Education Conference. This is just getting so much fun. Five days, all for free, multiple time zones, multiple languages, over 70 partner organizations right now, all on globally connected education. You can still submit to present. So we hope that if you're interested in attending or presenting, that you'll go to globaleducationconference.com. Coming up on the future of education, Lots of fun additions after our Elevating the Dialogue session uh, earlier this week. Next week, Sylvia Martinez, Roger Shank, and Kathleen Cushman. Really should be a great week next week. The week after, Nancy White and Jennifer Fox. Then Jim Burke on the English Companion Nang. Diane Ravitch is coming on. Clarence Fisher, Vicky Abelli, Stephen Farr, Tony Krasnick. Matt Levinson on his book, From Pure to Facebook. Uh, Philip, Sch Philip Schlechty. Leading for Learning. And then Will Richardson's coming on again, Karen Egan, Julie Young, Deborah Meyer, and Alfie Cohn. So a really great lineup getting us into December. Uh, we hope you'll join us for those, uh, those sessions that interest you. If you've missed a session, they're all recorded and they're up at futureofeducation.com, including our three hours this week um, with Alfie Cohn, Diane Rabich, Deborah Meyer, Chris Lehman, Gary Steger, Will Richardson, Julie Evans, and Sir Ken Robinson. That was certainly an interesting event. Uh, lots of feedback, mostly positive, but some negative, and some concern that we had uh, not elevated the dialogue. Um, lots, lots of food for thought. Uh, if this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment, and we hope that you will find ways to participate. Um, I always recommend you go up to View Layouts and switch to the wide layout. It makes it a little bit easier to see the chat. And in the participant window, at the bottom of that window, you have a smiley face, a clapping hand, a confused look, or a thumbs down. The larger button with a hand in the up arrow is how you raise your hand to ask a question with the microphone. If you do that, if you ask for the microphone when we get to Q&A, do be sure that you've already gone up to Tools, Audio, and tested your, and done the audio setup to test your microphone to make sure it's working. Um, if you send a message in the chat, you can use the drop-down box to send a message to another individual rather than the whole group. But do be aware that the moderators, so that would be Joe and Nisa and I, do see those messages. They're not fully private. Okay, so we're going to give you your first chance to participate here. To the left of the map, you'll see a wand with a red star at the end. If you click on that and click on the map, you can let Denise and Joe know where you're listening from. You can also shout out in the chat. It's fun to know the time and the temperature. Larry says, what difference will it make for Illuminate to be a part of Blackboard? Well, it's a, a fascinating transition because Blackboard bought both Illuminate and Wimba, two really great companies um, who have great reputations. Blackboard has a mixed reputation, one they're really trying to repair, and I really like them. Um, but they're a much larger company, so we're not really quite sure uh, what role the new Collaborate division will play. But hopefully it won't make much of a difference at all. And hopefully it's a, a positive all around. Look, we've got a really diverse audience tonight. Sure glad to have you listening. If you're listening to the recording, thank you for taking the time to do so. So Joe and Denise, this is really interesting for me. I sort of feel like the old adage of when the student is ready, the teacher will appear, uh, keeps applying in this interview series. I just loved the book. Uh, so what I'm hoping we can do is start with um, 
having you, I feel a little bit like I came into the middle of a movie. There's obviously history here uh, associated with the work that you're doing. Um, Joe, could you start by kind of giving us a little bit of a background on, on how the book fits into that history? Uh, sure. Um, well, Denise and I worked together at Brown for four years, and during that time we did a, uh, we focused entirely, all of our work uh, was focused on, on personalizing the high school experience. And, uh, and at that time, with uh, a number of um, researchers, practitioners that were working with us, uh, we created our first edited volume, which is uh, personalized learning. Um, and uh, basically, we had a, there were educators we were working with that were doing wonderful things, and we wanted to create a, a vehicle, a manner, a way that they could get their story out. Um, and this is uh, this follows that up. It, you know, it builds on the work that we've been doing, uh, and also, but it really is it's an opportunity for some really outstanding educators to uh, to, to tell their story. Um, and uh, you know, people like Ricardo LeBlanc Esparza, who wrote uh, the first chapter, um, are, are just a, he's just a tremendous individual, a tremendous practitioner. I think that many chances to write about what he's done and get people to to see and, and uh, see him in a different light. Um, and it was a, and we're really th thrilled to be able to offer that opportunity. So, Joe, I'm going to have to ask you to turn your so mic off. I know it's going to be hard to remember, but there you go. Thank you very much. Um, so, Denise, I want to describe the, the structure of the book. But before I do so, in a couple of places you mentioned you have kind of a personal connection to uh, these ideas. And is it your son who uh, went to the Met? Um, yes, my son Dylan, who recently turned 20, um, graduated from the Met in 2008. Um, and quite honestly, um, we lived in a, a very conservative, um, well-to-do New England town in Rhode Island um, and went to a blue, he had the option of going to a blue ribbon high school. Um, but for him, it was a terrible choice. Um, you know, it was very impersonal, it was very tracked, um, and quite frankly, had he not had that opportunity for hands-on learning at the Met, he would have dropped out, as did most of his friends. Um, so it's very personal to me, um, and, and I've seen the power and the difference that it makes in the lives of lots of kids. So, Joe, there are a couple of statistics in the, in the, in the introduction, I think it is, uh, that really kind of surprised me. And you, you're going to have to wait to turn your mic on until I finish the question, because you can't hear it, but the, the audience hears this a uh, lot echo. Sorry about that. Um, and one was that 18% uh, of um, the students are getting a degree that would qualify them for what is now currently 32% of the job market. And the other was that schools were designed for when 5% of students attended high school. I was expecting to read in that sentence when they attended college, but it says when they attended high school. So those numbers are pretty compelling. Is that a pretty good uh, way to, to sort of introduce the material? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, people tend to forget that the high school was designed long before we had child labor laws, um, which meant that most children at ages 9 and 10 went to work. Uh, hardly any kids went to high school, and women, forget it, they didn't go to high school. So, I mean, the high school really was designed over a century ago, but when our friends at, at Harvard, now if anyone listening is a Harvard grad, I apologize, uh, but it really was Harvard's fault. Uh, Harvard um, created, basically when they wanted to become, become more of a national university, they wanted to make sure that applicants had, a, had an appropriate education prior to going to Harvard. So they created the Carnegie Commission, which ended up ultimately creating the Carnegie Unit uh, at about the turn of the century, the 1900s, just about 1900s, just before 1900 when the Carnegie Unit was developed. Of course, the Carnegie Unit is, the, is still used as the amount of time it takes to earn credit in a course in high school. And that time to earn credit is the basis of everything that happens in the high school. Uh, again, at a time 20, 30 years before child labor laws were enacted. So it, it, you know, universal education beyond fourth grade was, was pretty much unheard of. Um, so the high school really was only designed to educate 5% of our young men. Um, and we haven't been able to figure out how to change that design, pretty much haven't changed that design, uh, without any substantial changes in that basic concept of you sit in class for 120 hours over the course of the year and you earn credit. Um, that's 
so that's the, I mean, that's the five percent story. And the other part of it is is true. Thirty two percent of the workforce is uh, currently has a bachelor's degree or higher, and we're turning on about eighteen percent over uh, ten years after entering the ninth grade. For every hundred kids who went to the ninth grade, we end up with ten years later, eighteen of them having earned a bachelor's degree. So we really uh, have a number of reasons why, compelling reasons why we need to think about redesigning the high school. So I'm going to tease the audience a little bit by saying that as I read the book, I kept thinking, oh, this this tells me now how Finland does it. Um, maybe even oversimplification. I hope you'll push back on that. But it was intriguing to me to kind of say the light bulbs were going off, and I kept thinking this is really a great explanation of how uh, education can work. And what you've done is you've you've taken eight practitioners and you've allowed them to tell stories about a certain way of schooling, with each chapter focusing on a different aspect of that. So how would you would it be useful? to kind of describe those eight chapters briefly, and Denise, maybe I could ask you to, to do that so that people get a sense of what they could expect in the book. Um, sure. I mean, at the premise of this, and, and, and kind of going back to the beginning, the idea for us was to allow some very innovative educators to tell their story um, and, and talk about how possible this really is. Um, between Joe and I, we had ha have had relationships with everybody who contributed to our book, um, and um, it's based around um, three basic parts: um, personalizing the school environment, so using um, a, a structure like a, a student-teacher advisories, where one adult is responsible for a small group of students and gets to know them both on a personal as well as an academic level to help support their learning. Um, there's also um, a, a piece around personal learning plans, the idea that all students would have created for themselves a learning plan that incorporates their interests, what they might want to do in the future, allows them to explore different themes, and so on. Um, at the Parker Charter School here in Massachusetts, um, they've done a wonderful job of helping kids do career -like explorations, of imagining life beyond high school so that when they do get to that point where they're ready to go into a college environment, they have a much clearer idea of what that might be. Um, in the second portion of the book, Making Learning Personal, um, we're looking at uh, uh, changing practices. So. Um, if you look at project-based learning, for example, the new technology high schools, new tech high schools, um, are doing a wonderful job of allowing students to do project-based learning where they're allowed to go deep into a subject matter that they're very interested in and develop a full-scale project um, that can be exhibited after a while. They incorporate technology into that. Um, and, and kids have an opportunity to really get interested and go deep into something that they, that, that they are passionate about and have an opportunity to exhibit. Um, beyond that, there's a the allowances to make learning personal. Um, in um, chapter four of our book, Ron Newell and Mark Van Risen um, from the Middle Minnesota New Country Day School in uh, Henderson, Minnesota did um, a, a chapter really explaining about how important it is for kids to feel connected to their learning. Um, and one of the things that they did that I thought was interesting is they did a study about the influence of hope and optimism on outcomes, on student outcomes. And they really found that students that could find um, hope, that they felt hopeful and optimistic about their futures, actually did much better in high school. So it explains some of the, um, the uh, material that was in that study in that chapter. Um, finally, to wrap up that part of the book, there was a piece on assessment. Um, Catherine Delora, who is the former um, principal of School of the Future in New York City, talked about using exhibitions as alternatives to those drill and kill assessments, those, um, those high stakes tests like the Regents or the MCAS that are used in so many places, um, as an alternative to know what kids are, know and are able to do. It's, it's a, again, a much better uh, assessment method than the, the current testing um, scheme. Finally, in the third part of the book, um, looking at how you sow the seeds for change, um, Ginger Eves, um, Virginia Eves, who is the former principal of Madison High School in San Diego, California, really looked at going into 
um, a, 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 a very large high school um, in California where the demographic had gradually shifted over time um, and the school was literally falling apart at the seams. And she talked about her journey as the school's new leader of coming in and really um, making a change, um, going from the ground up talking to the parents, talking to the teachers, talking to the rest of the community, and talking to the teachers to find out what it was that was what it was going to take in order to really change the culture of that school to create a learning community where everybody could thrive. Um, and the, the challenges that are posed on a leader for that, you know, we, we hear a lot about the challenges that teachers face every day, but the challenges that principals and school leaders face are every bit as daunting. Um, and they're constantly having to do that dance um, with higher up administrators, with the superintendents, the school boards, around you know, staying connected there long enough to actually make the changes that they're, they're trying to do um, really take hold and stay long enough so that the changes in the culture can be sustainable. Um, finally, um, Linda, uh, uh, Linda Nathan from the Boston Arts Academy um, did a wonderful job in Boston working with the community of learners in her school, her teachers, to create a great professional learning culture. Um, and, and if you're looking for a, a really wonderful model to create PLCs, I really recommend Linda Nathan and, and that particular chapter. And the final chapter of the book, um, Jeff Park, who's the former principal at the Front Range, Front Range Early College High School in Denver, um, he, it, it is a um, big picture school, which is similar to the Met. It's in the same group of schools that my son went to and really describes um, using um, personal learning plans. A lot of, uh, the, the, the whole Met model, the big picture model, is all about learning through internships. And he really explains how that's a very rigorous and challenging education for every student that, that encounters it. Um, sometimes these kind of alternative models are poo-pooed by the education establishment as being not rigorous enough, but um, having been the parent of a student who went through the Met um, all four years, I know the rigor was there. I have one child, Dylan, who, who did go through the Met and, and had that experience. I have a second child, Ashley, who just graduated from that very traditional high school in our hometown last year. Um, who didn't have that, and quite frankly, I think he came out with a, a better combination of skills from high school. So that's kind of the, the walking tour of, uh, of our book. So um, part of what the book did for me was it took a lot of these concepts and uh, moved them out of the pie in the sky kind of arena into this is actually being practiced by a number of schools and the results are good not just good in many cases, great. Joe, uh, how pervasive is this? Is it still a drop in the bucket? Uh, or you know, uh, how many schools are actually operating on this kind of a model? There, there are, uh, I would say, we're into hundreds, not thousands, across the country. Uh, there's probably 50 or 60 big picture schools. There's a number of the new technology schools. And then there are a number of schools that, are, that have just decided uh, that they're going to personalize learning that are scattered throughout the country. So um, uh, it's growing, but it's uh, it's not um, pervasive yet, and it's something that we we hope to have uh, a greater uh, impact in the future. One of the things that, uh, that we've done at CSSR is we've just actually won an uh, innovation fund grant to work with a network of schools in New England, um, in Maine. New Hampshire, Vermont, and Massachusetts to really work on personalization and including performance assessment. So if you read the chapter on Catherine Delora, the chapter on um, School of the Future, that school is one of the schools in the New York Consortium for Performance Assessment that has managed to get a waiver from the regents in, uh, uh, from in New York where their graduates don't have to pass five regents exams, they have to pass uh, the language arts readings exam, and they have to do four exhibitions during their high school career, and, and that's explained in the chapter that they, uh, what the exhibitions entail. Um, uh, but they track how the kids do. They, uh, uh, in that consortium, they have half as many kids entering functioning at grade level as New York City as a whole, and yet they have much higher graduation rate, much higher rate of kids going directly into post-secondary, 
and a much higher rate of, of uh, persisting at least through their sophomore year because that's how long they track them after graduation. So uh, that group of schools um, is another group, another approach. Most of these schools rep uh, are not single schools but represent a number of schools that are doing these things. So, so that the uh, the numbers are growing, but there's still a, a long way to go. We, we, we have, I don't, I'm sure there's not a thousand really personalized high schools in the country, and there's about 20,000 high schools. And I'll give you an idea. So why is it hard for us to, um, as a larger culture, why is it hard for us to see the value of this and promote it? Um, are there sort of inherent difficulties in communicating the message? Or is it because it competes with the high-stakes testing message, which uh, is in some ways maybe simpler but more compelling to people? Compelling to people. Well, I think the, the high-stakes testing um, is definitely an impediment. But um, I think it's just I think it's tradition more than anything, and that the tradition is really hard to break, um, and there's a lot of resistance to to trying new things. But the accountability was strong in. Uh, in Granger, Washington, when Richard uh, Ricardo LeBlanc Esparza was the principal there, uh, and he were, and his story I think is is perhaps the most compelling story in the in the, in the book, um, and he uh, he dramatically turned around uh, a very high poverty, high minority um, school that had a, a high high crime rate and, every, and all the other things associated with it, and turned it completely around by focusing on, on personalization and focusing on making sure that each of the children were known and known well and that we focused on how they were doing. So it went from a focus on the adults to a focus on the children, and it really worked. Um, and it worked dramatically. So um, it's, and then they had high-stakes exams. So it's not the high-stakes exams necessarily. It's how you look at your school and, and how you think about the children in it. So uh, it's even interesting for me to hear you talking about the book now because you're you're talking about assessments. We'll talk about advisories. We'll talk about some of the components, but those are really just words until you read the chapters and you kind of get the story and the the sense and the feel of what's taking place. So let's say I read the book, Denise, and I'm not in an area where there's a school like that, and I'm a teacher or a student or a parent. Are there things that I can take away from the book? What kind of action can I take based on having uh, read those stories and really felt they were compelling? Well, actually, we intentionally tried to set up the chapters and, and work with the authors in the book to, um, to ask them to, to tell stories about how you did it, what were the challenges, um, what were your successes, how kind of how-to um, if another school were to look at trying to do this sort of uh, practice in their own school. Um, at the end of each chapter, too, we um, provide some study questions. Um, you know, the whole idea was to um, provide concrete examples of what they've done in their own communities. Um, one of the things I like about the Granger story that, Larry, uh, that uh, Joe was mentioning earlier um, um, Granger is a very small town in a remote area of western Washington state. Um, and you know you don't hear, hear a lot about rural successes, um, which I thought was important. But um, the reason why I mention it is at the end of each book, or each chapter, I'm sorry, we gave reflection questions so that uh, a school that wanted to look at those practices could think about what they've read and then a professional learning community or a group of others that were thinking about doing this could go through the guiding questions at the end of the, um, of the chapter and, um, and, and think about how would we adapt what they've done to work in our school. Um, we've also tried to provide some additional resources. So, you know, for example, if you were looking at setting up an advisory program, there is a, a variety of resources um, available. Um, and we just did a, a quick list of some things that can support that. Um, but, um, you know, the, the fact is that this is ultimately doable. Um, you know, I've seen in the chat, you know, that 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 people are talking about. It, it takes um, patience. It takes time. It, it takes the um, ability to allow leadership to gel long enough to actually let the the changes that they're trying to do take hold. You know, um, when you're looking at changing the culture of a school, 
you really have to think of it as like turning the Titanic. It takes a long time. It's not done without some resistance and some pressure. Um, you know, and, 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 and sometimes you overcorrect. <laughs> so you have to come back to the center. Um, but the point is you, you have to be patient. Nothing happens overnight. Um, and you have to bring people along and, 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 and cut through their resistance so they understand that you all need to get into the same direction and, and, and work together to make these kinds of things happen. And um, I, I guess Joe and I are the two big believers. Actually, I'd like to add to what Denise had to say um, because uh, if any change will face resistance. This is true in any walk of life and, any, and not just in education. Um, and any real change will face real resistance. And what we're talking about is something that's really, that's really different and so different from the traditional that there will be lots of resistance. And, and uh, the, the compelling stories to me are the schools that, like Granger, uh, like uh, Madison and San Diego, schools that were existing schools that made dramatic change because the resistance is clear, strong in, in those places. Schools that were started to be personalized had a much easier go. And some of the stories in our book are schools that were started as personalized schools, as charter schools. But the ones that had to change the culture had a much, much more difficult task. And uh, in, our, in our work, we basically say, you know, if you don't get any resistance, then you haven't changed anything. So anyone who wants to do this needs to anticipate that there's going to be resistance and would really benefit from reading the chapter that uh, Ginger is uh, the most compelling story of facing resistance down and just continue to do what's best for kids that I know of. So I thought that the, the in uh, in the chapter on curriculum, there's a hierarchy diagram that shows the uh, triangle, and at the bottom is school culture, above that school purpose, school structure, instructional practices, and student success. I thought that was really marvelous. Do, do other people find that particular diagram helpful as well? I'm sorry, Steve. I, I didn't hear you. Could you repeat, please? Oh, sorry. So uh, on page 50 of the book, there's a hierarchy of needs for school change diagram. And it's uh, you know in the form of a triangle. And at the base of the triangle is school culture, and then above that, school purpose, then structure, instructional practices, and at the top, student success. That really kind of reshaped for me the sense of what really needed to happen. Um, the, do other people respond as positively to that particular diagram? Um, some people have. Um, you know, the, the the thing is, is we have to think about students and student success as being the pinnacle of what we're trying to do. Um, and and you know, one of the mantras that Joe and I've always had is, it's much easier to change the structures of a school than it is to change the culture. Um, so when you're looking at a school like Granger or Madison, where they've had to um, to kind of undo a toxic culture or undo a, a traditional culture um, and rebuild it, um, it's, it's much more difficult. But if you, if you look at that kind of hierarchy of needs um, that, that um, they spell out in the book, you, know, you, you really have to look at the foundation of everything is culture. You, know, you, you have to have a culture that, that kids are at the, at the center of what we do that um, we need to collaborate with one another. Um, and we need to get very clear about what our purpose and goals are, what our outcomes need to be. Um, how do we align our structures to be in support of those things? Um, and finally, aligning those instructional practices, again, all to get our students to have the kinds of successes that they need to have. Um, and, and I have found it very helpful for people to be able to visualize it using these kinds of graphics. Joe, uh, if we could, I really loved that first chapter as well, the Ricardo's chapter on advisories. Um, would you be willing to explain what an advisory is and what it's like to have them like in a school? Sure. Uh, advisories, basically, it's every student in the school um, is assigned to meet with, with an adult in the school. Uh, on a regular basis. Um, places with successful advisors, I'll take Granger High as an example. Um, it's a relatively small school, 400 students. 
uh, in, in a, but 90% poverty, 90% minority, children of migrant farm workers, um, a high crime rate within the school. Actually, murder took place just before Ricardo became the principal in the school. And, um, and, and so in a way to get to know, for the kids to be known well, and to, to basically he wanted to divide up the troublemakers. Instead of having 40 troublemakers in one group, he put five in each advisory, you know. Um, so he divided the faculty, they divided the number of kids into groups of 18. Every faculty member, including himself, the principal, and administrators had a group of 18 kids. They met with them four times a week for 30 minutes. Uh, the primary focus uh, um, in those sessions was really, well, getting to know the kids, know that somebody cared, but staying on top of them academically at the same time, creating their personal career plan. Uh, and then the ultimate part of it is, the biggest part of it is that they do uh, twice a year, you know, once each semester, we do a, a student-led conference where the students, each student, in the presence of their advisor, would present their portfolio of work, their career plan, their life their life goals, their short-term goals for the next year to their parents and, and sometimes to other community members, but it ranges primarily to the parents. And they, um, most high schools, as you know, have fewer than 10% of the parents come in. Um, and uh, what happened by the, by the second year of those student-led conferences went through the advisory where, where the students were known really well by that one individual teacher, they got 100% of the parents to come in. Oh, well, a related adult they lived with, okay? So sometimes it was an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent, but 100% uh, of the kids had a related adult they lived with come into the school twice a year. Uh, they did it for five full years in a row, 10 semesters in a row. They had every parent, every student had their parent come to the school twice a year to listen to their uh, student talk about their work. Uh, getting this done was not an easily an easy, was not easily accomplished, but it was it was at the heart of an advisory program that focuses not just on making sure the kids are known well and they can have a a, a, a conversation with an adult in the room. It's beyond it could, that's included in it, but it's much more about let's figure out how we can help these kids academically. So at the end of the the, the six or seven years that it took to develop this, they've gone from a graduation rate of 58 percent to a graduation rate of over 90 percent. They've gone their their achievement scores skyrocketed. They went from, and they went from uh, out of that original 58%, about 20 to 30% of them went to college, and they went to where 90% of the kids were going right off to college. It's just a dramatic, dramatic turnaround. And Ricardo will tell you, and if you read the chapter, I'm sure you'll it'll be clear that it was getting the kids to be known and the parents to be known and everybody on the same page is what did it. And he said it's an advisory. And his feeling is 20 to 1 in any size school, you can do this. You have 20 students with one adult. Uh, it's not a function of only being able to do it in a small school. It's a function of breaking down the big numbers so that every student has someone that they can relate to who knows them well. Uh, so Ricardo kept his same, same 18 kids for four years. And when they graduated, they knew him, they knew him very well, and he knew them all very well. I want to chime in a little bit on this one too. Um, you know, one of the things I found in, in working with schools implementing advisory programs, most high school teachers um, are content area specialists. You know, and it, it, it takes us way outside of our comfort zone um, to think about something beyond that content that we are so passionate about. You know, we are um, English teachers, we are history teachers, we are math teachers, and, and we're very comfortable with that content. But when we ask teachers to make that shift from a content area specialist to take that step into personalization to become an advisor, it opens up a whole bag of insecurities for a lot of folks. So it's really important when we're implementing a, a structure of personalization like advisory, like implementing personalized learning plans, um, giving kids a little more control over what goes on in the classroom than we're accustomed to giving over. Um, it's very important for us to help support them um, in that new role as advisor um, to understand that this is about personalizing our relationships with students, letting the barriers down a little bit, um, you know, allowing students to not only get to know us a little better, but also that peer-to-peer -peer relationship in the group. Um, and again, it, it, it takes a shift from direct instruction to facilitator that can be very uncomfortable for a lot of teachers. Um, and it, it takes support, it takes time, um, it, it takes caring. And 
Ricardo was very clear about what his expectations were from his teachers, but in, again, in many other schools, it can be difficult. Um, one of the things that I found is that in schools where the principal is kind of the standard bearer, the, the person who stands behind and supports and allows for the appropriate amounts of professional development, the, the, the staff to talk to one another and uh, focus on each other um, and support each other, those are the places where advisory really tends to take hold and become part of the culture of the school. And you know, what's more is you start with building relationships and building community, but then you can move out to supporting students academically, supporting their post-secondary and, 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 and uh, career plans, um, looking at community service. I mean, there are so many wonderful outcomes that can happen as a result of advisory that can be a wonderful place in the school. Um, and I, you know, I'm a true believer because I've seen it happen in a number of schools where it's just changed everything. It's made the whole conversation much better. And, um, but it's about making those cultural shifts. It's, it's changing the culture that can be so difficult. So there are multiple flavors of the advisory that are, that are described in the book. There's the, the, the advisor with the group that meets for two to two and a half hours a week over the course of the week. There are advisories that continue through several years of school. I even thought that the the one school that had the class the same that all the teachers taught the same class for the first ever every morning was sort of a form of an advisory. Um, so part of what the feeling I got from the book was there are a lot of different ways to do this. It doesn't there's no necessarily a single cookie cutter way, but that clearly this relationship building between the students with each other and with the advisor and then with their parents really makes a difference. It's uh, yeah. really powerful. Right. We agree. And every school really needs to figure out for themselves what's the best way to do it in their school. And that, so there are a lot of different ways of doing it. But the real important thing is to make sure that every kid is known and, and supported. Um, and that's how you do that will vary. And there, there are some basic structures for creating those kinds of supports. And, and you know, but the most important thing, and I think Joe would agree with me, is it's very important to have a conversation as a school community about what your outcomes, you know, what is your goal and outcome for your program. And then look at articulating it through the grades. You know, what freshmen need are, is often going to be very different than what your seniors are going to need. Um, and you know, so you have to look at you know what's your overarching goal for advisory for um, your entire school, and then how does that play out across the grades so that each grade is appropriately um, supported. But you know, there's no one way to do it. I mean, you really have to talk together as a school community and 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 decide on what's the best program for you. Is it 30 minutes twice a week? Is it an hour every day? Um, you know, it, it really depends on what can happen in your community. And, and you need to get consensus on that in order to make that successful. So my response may be similar to others. I, I read the, the chapter on advisors and then the references to advisors throughout the book. And I came away thinking, how could you do anything otherwise? And I had the same feeling about the personal learning plans. So Denise, would you be willing to describe kind of the process of personal learning plans? Um, sure. I mean, a, a personal learning plan at the, at the root really helps students think about, um, it helps them think about where they are and helps them take them to where they want to be. So some of the elements can include, and again, just like advisories, it can be a little different from school to school but really doing kind of an interest inventory of self-exploration about what are my interests, what are the things I like and don't like personally, what are the things that I'm interested in learning more about, and so on. So you start with kind of an interest inventory. Um, and then you build from there. You know, you look at what are the courses that you're taking in high school that are required? Um, what are the things that you need to graduate? If you're thinking that, for example, um, a student might decide that they want to be a veterinarian when they get older because they like animals. Um, they might want to take that track in post-secondary. Um, so what is it that you need to do in high school in order to set yourself up to get into veterinary school or to go on to, to college and study animal uh, husbandry or whatever 
part of it that they're interested in. So you examine not only what you need to do in high school, but what's going to position you as a student to be attracted to colleges. Um, and, and a personal learning plan is something that starts as a freshman and grows every year. The one thing I learned about with my son who had a, a, a personal learning plan, PLP, um, every year is, is, you know, he wanted to be a videography when he was a freshman and by the time he graduated, um, he was interested in welding. So, you know, just like any other kid, their, their, their interests grow over time and they learn almost as much from what they don't want to do or from their mistakes they, as they learn from what they want to do. Um, so a personal learning plan is something that grows with them over time and what I found is really interesting is you can sit down with students when they're doing a portfolio review. We're really looking at that PLP that they've done over time and, and, and look at how they've changed and grown over their years in high school. Um, and, 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 you know, pulled out those samples of the work that they've done and, and looked at how they've changed and decided to go in new directions. But it's something that helps keep them on track for high school, but also looking at those post-secondary options. Is it the military? Is it college? Is it some sort of trade school? Are they going to go take a year off and go do something else beyond college? It helps focus them in a direction towards success. I'd like to add, Denise has eloquently described it. I think it's real important to keep in mind that the personal learning plan is a process, not a document. It's, as, as Denise said, it's, it's a living, breathing kind of thing. The kids constantly need to reflect on who they are, uh, what they want. It's, and, and in many places, personal learning plans have been mandated and they become a document where you check the box off, box off or you know, took that course, took that course. It really has to be a process that the students really, that, that you can use as a great vehicle to engage the students in, in reflecting on who they are and where they want to go and how they're going to get there and how, how school impacts their ability to get there. So we're going to move to Q&A in a couple of minutes, but before we do so, Joe, are there policy implications for this work? What, what, when people ask you what, you know, what, what should happen on a, on a policy level, how do you respond? But yes, there are policy implications on, on this. Um, one, uh, well, one is that um, for time on, on learning, uh, the policy needs to be that advisory time is actually instructional time. Uh, it has to be used as instructional time so that they don't end up thinking of this as something separate from instruction and there can be policies that allow for that. Uh, New Hampshire has great policies to, to support this because New Hampshire has mandated the elimination of the only first state, the only state to mandate the elimination of the Carnegie unit. So uh, you can't earn credit based on time spent in class in New Hampshire anymore. So that means there's time to do other things. Uh, and time is the enemy for all of the innovations, but time should not be taken away from advisory. Now the other parts of this, and Denise and I know this well, is um, that um, <clears throat> there needs to be professional development for this to happen. So having uh, somewhere, some, poli some policy level professional development funds that can be allowed to help teachers become better at becoming advisors, I think is important. Um, and uh, it's, so the Carnegie unit's important, getting away from the high stakes exams Moving away towards moving more towards performance assessment is, is to me is a policy issue that that uh, I think is is deep has deep impact on on, on uh, personalizing schools and helping students to learn. Um, as Denise mentioned, with her son, happened with several of my children, uh, having the ability to demonstrate mastery of, of a content area in some way other than a paper and pencil test um, is uh, is critical for an awful lot of kids. So can we expand that even beyond? I mean, I, I know there's a mention that each of the schools in here is a chartered school. Does that have implications? Uh, no, they're not all charters. Uh, Granger's not, and uh, Madison is not. Um, school of the Future is not. So they're not all charters. They're, some are just uh, regular public schools. Um, uh, they are... Uh, so, um, so, so charter might be the answer, but it's not the only answer. Yeah, quite frankly, we're not all waiting for Superman. Um, you know, charter is one way um, for uh, uh, schools, district, or for districts, cities, states 
to create alternative learning environments like the Met, um, like the new tech schools. But it's not the only way. Um, and, and you know, quite frankly, the importance of public schooling. I mean, you look at the smaller learning communities program that the federal government adopted and is continuing to support. Um, and you realize that um, that you know there's more than one way to skin a cat. You know, we, we, we have to start with the schools that we have and try to make them work. And I, I know that we've all been at that for a long time, but that's where the kids are. You know, not you know, you can't get all kids into charters. We can't just begin from scratch with everyone. Um, so it's really important that we um, that we look at where we are and and how we redesign schools to take kids where they need to go. Um, and you know, there, there's policy out there to support that. I, I, I don't agree with everything that's going on right now. I, as much as I love President Obama and Arnie Duncan, yeah, I keep feeling like it's like short attention span theater. You know, we 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 did dive somewhat deeply into personalized learning and, and smaller learning communities for a little while, and then suddenly it was all about accountability and the big hammer with no child left untested. I mean, behind. Um, and now, you know, boom, it's all about teacher quality. You know, we've like abandoned things. So you, you, we need to slow down. We need to go slow to go fast and think about what are the needs of our kids and how do we do this comprehensively, you know, really across the system. How do we take the best of all these great ideas and combine them to make schools that work for all students, not just a small select group. Um, you know, and that's why we're all going to have plenty of work to do for a long time. Joe, if you were the Secretary of Education, what would you be focusing on right now? I, I would be focusing on performance assessment, changing the assessment system so that performance assessment would be at the heart of everything. Uh, if you look at all the schools, uh, some kind of performance assessment was part of what they used to be able to turn around. Uh, it's just uh, critical that we start thinking about how kids can apply the knowledge, how they can communicate it. Um, how they can, uh, you know, in performance assessment, I'm talking about assessments that are done, students do things in their interest. Denise knows what I'm talking about because this happened with her son through his four years at the Met. Um, but where they have to present it to a critical panel. This is not something that, you know, uh, they can uh, skirt. And it's much more rigorous than what currently constitutes a regular state exam that they have to pass in order to graduate. But it gives kids many more options on not being able to do it. So uh, for me, the primary thing I would focus on is, is really moving away from the standardized test towards performance assessments. If some, now, go ahead. Well, if I were the Secretary of Education, um, you know, I, I agree with Joe about performance assessments because they're incredibly important. And I have seen the power um, uh, of that with my own son. Um, but it's also really looking at um, supporting educators to, 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 to make those changes. You know, it's, it's one thing to decide that you're going to do a senior project or institute performance assessments. But you, you also have to support educators in order to do that. Um, so it, you know, it's, it's making that shift into you know, what does it really mean to redesign your day, for example, so that um, you're allowing kids time to go deeply into that subject that they're going to present on. Um, but also keeping in mind that we need to turn out well-rounded, well-educated citizens that aren't just paying attention to one thing that they're exhibiting. Um, so one of the reasons why I love the Met and the big picture schools is as kids are creating those projects, um, they have to look at you know what are the higher order thinking skills you know what um, how are they getting their math in the project they're doing um, I'm going to give a very short example in the stock my my son um, one year did a, a, a whole project on welding um, he actually graduated with his high school diploma and four certificates in welding he he was certified as a welder could have gone out and started a job doing that and of course now he plays in a punk band um, but he had he had options, and, and one of the things I liked about it is he he looked at welding, but how did math figure into it? How did you have to um, figure out the the densities of things? Um, but so there was science involved. How did you have to um, explore the history of welding and so on? You had to do a lot of thinking about more than just how do you put two pieces of metal together. 
um, and, and they pushed him to do that. Um, so that kind of project-based instruction and, and, um, and um, uh, proficiency-based graduation requirement, that, that exhibition that he did, was really important because when he did his final exhibition, there were a number of people on the panel that really pushed him to say, how do you know this? How can you prove it? And, uh, and it was really a great experience for him. A lot of kids never really get an opportunity for that. So if you'd like to ask Joe Denise a question, we're going to shift over to that. You can do so by either putting it in the chat or raising your hand using the icon of the hand with the green up arrow, the larger icon at the bottom of your participant window. While we're waiting for a question, uh, Joe, uh, where do people go if they want to learn more? They read the book, they love what's going on. Are there communities? Are there the books you recommend? Your own organization? Your own organization. Uh, actually, at the end of each chapter, we have a list of resources that's pretty extensive that, uh, that could point people in the right direction. Um, ASCV has a good video series uh, that we participated in um, that uh, if you want to see how this works uh, in schools, you know, and kids talking about their experience in advisory and in, uh, with personal learning plans and, and all that, the ASCV video is a, is a very good resource. Uh, both of our organizations, um, Center for Secondary School Redesign, where I am, and Denise's uh, uh, at the Educators for Social Responsibility, both organizations have a lot of resources that we can uh, put out there. So, um, yeah, uh, and, but I would recommend really looking at the questions at the back of each chapter and, and the list of, uh, of potential resources that connect and, and allow people to go more deeply into the concept, concepts presented in that chapter. Is there any kind of an online community or um, regular conference organization? Well, Jill mentioned Jill ASCD, ASCD before, before uh, the, uh, the Association of Christian, of Christian Curriculum Supervision and Curriculum Development. Thank you, Jill. Thank you, Jill. Um, they have an annual conference every year. They'll be in San Francisco um, next spring. Um, there's also the National Association of Secondary School Principals, NASSP, um, if you're looking for leadership supports. And they have a, a wide variety of resources available. Um, you know, the, co the Coalition of Essential Schools is at the, at the base of a lot of personalized learning. Um, and you can find that at essentialschools.org, and I'll type that into the window. Joe, I'm sure you have 100 others. Well, actually, yeah, the big thing that, that we've always found, and, and I think this book is an example of that, is that uh, practitioners in schools really like to, to hear what other practitioners are doing. So we do occasionally have what we call high school showcases. Um, we have a couple coming up. We have one coming up on November 15th in Concord, New Hampshire, uh, and you can find out about it on our website, uh, www.cssr.us. But at that, uh, at our showcase there, which is a Northeast showcase, we have we will have Boston Arts Academy there, and we'll have Urban Academy, which is one of the schools. It's similar to School of the Future, but we think it's probably a little bit more interesting. Um, and uh, and Parker will be there. So so three of the chapters in the book will be kind of directly referenced. And um, we uh, and the first day of the pre-conference for the National Association of Secondary School Principals Annual Conference, which is in February in San Francisco is a day-long showcase. Again, no keynoters, nobody talking except people in schools telling their stories in, uh, in small breakout rooms. Um, and and then that one will, uh, Urban Academy will be there as well. And I can't remember the names of the others right after that, but there's a lot of these schools will be there doing it really, oh, actually the, uh, the Met School from Oakland, Met West will be there for sure. So you know, those are a couple of opportunities to just get a chance to, to, to meet practitioners that are doing these things and, and really kind of pick their brains on how they were able to accomplish what they did. I also recommend the Coalition of Essential Schools Fall Forum, which will be in San Francisco um, the second week in November um, this year. Um, and I put the um, website up, I think, for um, essentialschools.org. Um, you could go online to their website and check that out. If you're looking for really innovative schools, many of them are charters or independent schools, but if you're looking for that um, personalized school practice, that is a great place to go. And their website is full of great information. So if, if I've missed the question in the chat while well, I've been going to those links, I apologize. Please point it out to me uh, or raise your hand and, 
and let us know. So we do have a couple of minutes left. If you have a question for Denise or Joe, please feel free to raise your hand or to put it in the chat. So I made reference earlier to Finland, and I think it's interesting to me. I've um, I've kind of wondered at how you explain the success of students in Finland with, with less school time and less homework. Do you see a parallel between the, the material that you've worked on and some of the things that take place in Finland? I don't know that much about what happens in Finland, but I, I, I do see a parallel in a couple of ways. One is that one of the things I do know is they aren't tested as much as our kids. Okay, so, so that right off the bat tells me something. And I, um, uh, I know they focus more on uh, in-depth knowledge and less, you know, less about coverage and more about going deep in the subject areas. Again, things that, that I think you would find consistent with what we present in the book. You know, I agree with Joe. I mean, you know, our kids have been given this feeling of what's not tested isn't valued. We kind of drilled that into kids. I mean, you look at, at, at successful students, and they and they kind of become grade grubby. You know, they they come in and the, you know they they suck up to the teacher and they say, you know, what's it going to take for me to get an A? You know, what do I have to do? You know, and their knowledge base ends up going about a mile wide and an inch deep. You know, these kids they remember only as much as um, as they need to remember to pass whatever test is being offered up that day. And you know, three weeks later, they can't remember it. Um, I actually saw a movie last week um, that, that was called the, the Race to Nowhere. Um, and it really looked at this phenomenon of the amount of pressure, the amount of uh, stress that kids had in their lives. And quite frankly, a lot of these kids that um, go on to post-secondary education, go on to college, End up, um, end up not being successful. They actually end up in remedial education. The same kids that were in AP classes in high school because they can't remember anything. They were too busy trying to pass the test to actually learn something for long-term um, memory. And you know, if you look at the research on brain-based learning, that's exactly it. If we don't allow kids to go deep, they're not going to be able to go long. Um, and I, I think that that is one of the primary differences between the American educational system and the systems in other countries like Finland or Singapore, um, where they're much more successful. Joe, I didn't want to um, speak if you were going to say something. No, go ahead. So I, I also saw that film, Denise, and the. I'm hoping I get the statistic correct, but I think uh, it was that at the top tier of the University of California schools, you have to have a 4.0 or better to be admitted, but a half of those students who attend have to take some form of remedial coursework. Um, that's true of the UC system, um, according to that movie. Um, I was so moved by it when, after I saw it, and Alfie Cohen was actually one of the discussants after the movie. It was very cool. Um, but um, if you go a little deeper than that, um, you, you'll find that in the Ivies, <laughs> Brown, Harvard, Stanford, um, that remedial track is every bit as deep. Um, and you know the problem is, again, these very high achieving kids, 4.0 or better. I mean, hell, when I was in high school, they didn't have anything bigger than a 4.0. Um, but they, again, they just couldn't retain it. You know, when it came back to do the college level work, they weren't capable of it, even though they'd aced their AP classes because they didn't develop that long-term thinking skill. Actually, I want to I'd like to add that this, this may be, I don't know if it's the last word, but um, uh, Melissa Roderick, who's uh, a highly regarded researcher at the University of Chicago, um, and, and a good friend, I love Melissa. She's originally from Fall River, Massachusetts, for those of you from New England. Anyway, M Melissa's just finished a study looking at the senior year. And it hasn't come out yet, but I had a conversation with her, and, and the part that I thought was really compelling, she said, you know, the senior year is a wasteland. Uh, we got all these kids taking uh, AP courses. And she said what she's discovered is there is no correlation between success in an AP course and success in college. Um, there is a correlation between success in an AP course and admission to college, but not to success in college. 
and that gets at what Denise was talking about. That, that we're, we're worrying about surface collecting. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> Steve, yikes. <laughs> so um, yeah, and, and all these kids are taking the AP classes that, that don't allow them to go deep, and it's all about memorizing the content that's in the class. It's not about what they're going to do in, in life or, or in college. So this has been really delightful. I think that was the last word, Joe. Uh, most appreciated. Uh, thank you, Bob. I'm going to clap for you both. Thank you both for the book, for the body of work, and for coming on tonight. Thanks to those of you who have attended. Um, uh, I really do recommend the book. Appreciation to Learn Central, Illuminate Blackboard, and Bing for helping provide the series. And do uh, see if there's an event coming up that's, that you think would be of use to you or of interest to you, and we hope that you will join us. Anything final to say, Joe or Denise? Thank you for this opportunity. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you too. Um, uh, you know, we've left our emails. Um, if anybody wants to continue the conversation, please um, feel free. I'm one of those 4 a.m. people, so if you email me, I will email you back. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Denise. Really terrific. Uh, loved the book. Uh, it's well dog-eared and underlined. My copy is now, and, and hopefully there'll be ways to continue the dialogue. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Have a great evening because I am traveling. I will we'll finish up now uh, and turn the recording off. Take care, everyone. <laughs>